This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first part of my end of season special for season 11 in which I tell the stories of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth who were murdered in Narborough and Enderby, Leicestershire in 1983 and 1986. In this first part I explore the lives of Linda and Dawn while delving into their respective murders. I'll also discuss the first three years of what would eventually be a four-year hunt for justice, culminating with the wrongful arrest of an innocent man. Next week, I'll start by discussing a revolutionary discovery that changed history and led to the actual perpetrator's arrest and conviction, whilst also providing some background information about the person responsible for murdering Linda and Dawn. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that fear of premature burial was so widespread in 18th and 19th century Europe, it led to the invention of the safety coffin? Over 30 different designs were patented in Germany in the second half of the 19th century, with the most common element being a mechanism that allowed those buried inside a coffin to ring a bell which was placed above ground. You might have seen that in the odd horror film. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. I don't blame people for their mistakes, but I do ask that they pay for them. Richard Attenborough. This case was requested by Pofro, Tbex, Helen Wallet, and Jane via various methods. It's a popular request, this case. And we're in the villages of Narborough and Enderby, as I mentioned. They're located just a mile apart in the East Midlands county of Leicestershire in England. Now, it might be pronounced Nabra, but I think it's Nabra. I'm going to stick with Nabra. If I am wrong, apologies, just let me know. The villages are eight miles southwest of Leicester, 43 miles east of Birmingham, and 102 miles north and slightly west of London. Now, because we're in two locations, I'll do five quickfire facts about Nabra in this episode and about Enderby in part two. Here are your five quickfire facts about Nabra. Number one. The Anglo-Saxons founded Narbra, and its name was originally Norbur, which means North Fort or Fortified House. So maybe it's Norbra. I'll stick with Narbra. Number two. In the 7th century, the Saxons are thought to have used Narbra as an outpost as they advanced across Leicestershire. Number three. At the time of the Doomsday Book in 1086, there was actually no mention of Narbra. It's thought that were due to its small size not warranting a dedicated mention. Number four, the Church of All Saints in Narborough was first mentioned in the 12th century, but there likely it was a church on the site much earlier. Parts of the present building are believed to date from the 13th century. And finally, number five, in the 18th century, there was a flourishing frame knitting industry in Leicestershire, with many frames being located in Narborough. According to the 2011 census, Narborough's approximate population is 8,498. Linda Rosemary Mann was born on July 31st, 1968, and would become the middle child of three girls. 
On either side of Linda was Susan, her older sister by two years, and Rebecca, the youngest of the three, who was welcomed to the world when Linda was 13. As our story begins in 1983, let me provide some background information about the UK economy at that time, as it'll offer some interesting context regarding Linda's family life. Linda lived at number 7, the Coppice in Narborough, with her mum, Kathleen, her stepdad, Edward Eastwood, and her two sisters. In the mid to late 70s, an oil crisis knocked the wind out of the global economy. It all stemmed from the Yom Kippur War of October 1973, a conflict between Egypt, Syria and Israel. Long story short, an embargo was imposed by Middle Eastern oil producers, which saw the oil price per barrel quadruple. That had later caused a super high UK inflation rate of over 24% and led to mass unemployment throughout the nation. By the early 80s, the tide had begun to change, but the aftershock of that period in the 70s meant a fair bit of financial hardship for working-class families such as Linda's. Edward, who worked as a quality control manager, had taken out various loans during that period, and by 1983, was working tirelessly each week in an effort to ensure all five of his repayment plans were maintained. He'd sometimes work as many as 90 hours a week, and there's a whole tangent I could get into regarding some trouble he got into about a withheld bankruptcy claim, but doing so won't add anything to this story. Linda was what was known at the time as a fifth former at Lutterworth Grammar School, a secondary school in Leicestershire established in 1880, which is now known as Lutterworth College. The equivalent of a fifth former would be year 11 in modern times, as Linda would have just started her final year of high school in the autumn of 1983. That's 10th grade or your sophomore year for my North American listeners, and I believe year 10 for my Australian audience. She was a punctual student who cared a lot about her schoolwork, so much so that she was labelled as being extremely conscientious by her teachers. Despite some of those close to her describing Linda as being old-fashioned, she was a very popular girl at the school and had plenty of friends whom she'd see regularly in her free time. Not one to go out that often, by which I mean nights out, Linda did have a regular meeting with friends on Saturday afternoons, during which they'd head the seven or so miles into Leicester City Centre to socialise and do a bit of window shopping while they're at it. The regularity of that routine offered comfort not just for Linda, but for Kathleen and Edward too. She was a responsible girl who was fast becoming a lovely young woman. Her parents were incredibly proud of her. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that had a bad word to say about Linda Mann. Her selfless nature extended to the local youth club, a place she frequently visited, as well as the family-friendly Narborough Congregational Church. The church community was delighted to have her as part of their congregation. Her positive outlook on life, beautiful smile and charm helped her ingratiate with anyone she met. To give you even more of an idea about how lovely Linda was, she'd used the vast majority of her savings, which she diligently put away throughout the year, to purchase her family some Christmas presents in November 1983, and that's where our tragic timeline begins. It were in the early evening of Monday, November 21st at around 7pm when Linda Mann left her home to attend her babysitting job. To her stepdad's surprise, the 15-year-old returned home five or ten minutes later and informed him that the baby's parents had explained how her services were no longer required that evening due to illness. I'm unsure whether they meant the baby or one of them, but regardless, Linda was no longer working that night. 
Deciding what to do with herself, Linda passed a bit of time by watching TV with her parents before they themselves headed out for a few drinks at the nearby Carlton Hayes Social Club, located about half a mile away from their home. Linda believed it wasn't wise to just sit inside all night and use the now free time she had to complete a couple of chores. Leaving her home at 7.15pm, her intention was to head to her friend's house in Enderby, the neighbouring village of Narborough, to, according to one source, collect an LP record. As she made her way there, Linda stopped at another friend's house for 10 minutes or so as she needed to pay some club money to that friend's mum. As the opening theme music of the 2362nd episode of Coronation Street blasted out from the TV set, Linda continued her journey to Enderby on foot. That was the last time anyone would see her alive. As Edward and Kathleen returned home shortly after 10pm, they were informed by Susan that Linda was not there. She never returned home after heading out three hours earlier. I assume 17-year-old Susan was looking after two-year-old Rebecca whilst their parents were out. As any parents would, the concerned husband and wife headed out into the village to look for Linda, but to no avail. Three more hours passed with no trace of Linda being found and she had still not returned home. The decision was made at 1.30am in the early hours of November 22nd to report Linda as missing to the police. As officers took statements from the family, within a few hours the search for Linda Mann would come to a dramatic and heartbreaking end. An early morning dog walker was on a footpath known locally as the Black Pad when she spotted something out of the corner of her eye. It was the body of a teenage girl. That black pad footpath runs from the grounds of what used to be Carlton Hayes Hospital until its closure in 1996 to Narborough Church. It's got a notorious rep among the locals due to its incredibly isolated nature and the potential of coming to harm at the hands of some of the village's, let's say, less favourable residents. It's surrounded by trees, which makes it downright impossible to find on a map unless you're a local and know exactly where to look. I kind of have an idea where it is. I was racking my brains on Google Maps, but I'm still not sure. So well hidden was the body that Edward is said to have passed within three yards of it when he was out looking for Linda the previous evening. The body had been placed just off the footpath, and although it hadn't been buried or intentionally hidden, due to the amount of dense shrubbery, it would have been impossible a spot in the darkness. The devastating reality that the body belonged to Linda was soon told to Kathleen and Edward, which shattered their world to smithereens. Linda was found partially clothed due to someone interfering with her, and it appeared that she'd been asphyxiated. A post-mortem conducted by consultant pathologist Dr Victor Pugh at Leicester Royal Infirmary soon confirmed Linda's cause of death as being due to strangulation, although at first the police refused to confirm whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted, which she in fact had. Due to the cold weather, Dr Pugh was unable to pinpoint the time of death, but logically it must have occurred between the hours of roughly 8pm and midnight. As over 100 police officers searched the surrounding areas with dogs as their trusty helpers, fears came to light that Linda's murder might be linked to other recent cases which had yet to be solved. Just over three weeks earlier, a 16-year-old girl called Colette Aram was raped and strangled to death as she walked down another isolated footpath in the Nottinghamshire village of Keyworth, 28 miles away. 
So similar were the profiles of the two girls, as well as the methods involved, the forces from Leicestershire and Nottinghamshire actually agreed to meet and discuss them. An interesting tidbit about Colette's case is that it was the first ever case to be discussed on BBC's Crime Watch in its June 1984 debut episode. That case would eventually see Paul Stuart Hutchinson charged with murdering Colette in 2009, with him being handed a life sentence the following year. Another case thought to be linked with Linda's was that of 33-year-old Caroline Osborne, who was stabbed to death in July 1983. Two years after, it was revealed that double murderer Paul Bostock was responsible for killing Caroline, as well as 21-year-old Amanda Whedon. As we head back to Linda's timeline in November 1983, it's important to remember how technologically inferior things were back then. Most things relied on witness testimony, and goodness me, was there a lot in Linda's case. Most of the witnesses that came forward in the immediate aftermath of Linda's death spoke of witnessing a punk rocker in the area at around the time of the murder, with some even claiming to have almost run someone over as they fled the area on foot. The man in question was accompanied by a young girl, who some believe was Linda Mann, so that was clearly before the murder took place. The problem with witness testimony, of course, is the variance of descriptors. If we go out on a limb and assume all the witnesses saw the same person, which they won't have, then the police will have been looking for a 16 to 20 year old who was between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 10, wearing a bomber jacket of various colours and having either spiky black and white hair or swept back collar length dark hair. Newspapers at the time commonly referenced a running man, as each of the testimonies mentioned seeing a man who looked scared and appeared to be running away from something or someone. Those who knew Linda spoke of her Saturday outings to Leicester as being with a punk rocker type man, so perhaps it was Linda in the company of a boy she knew? You can decide for yourself as the story progresses. Police began appealing to local parents to consider whether they recalled their son returning home out of breath late at night. Now, out of all the testimonies I've read, and there are loads, the two most crucial ones, I think, are as follows. They didn't actually lead to anything, but still. Firstly, a couple driving along King Edward Avenue in Narborough recalled seeing a young lad of about 17, wearing a bomber jacket, sitting on the side of the road opposite the entrance to the black pad. That were on November 26, five days after Linda's murder. He had his head in his hands and appeared to be bawling his eyes out. Was that Linda's killer, or was it simply one of her grieving close friends? As far as I can tell, all efforts to trace him failed, which brings me to my second crucial piece of witness testimony. In a kiosk in the village of Husbands Bosworth, a young boy found a telephone book with something scribbled on it in pen on the first page. The number 15 was followed by the words, The Cottage. Based on the fact the person who wrote that message contacted the police a day later to explain he had innocently written down information about the case in the book as he phoned a colleague, I think it's fair to assume he misheard The Coppice, Linda's home address, instead writing The Cottage. The man was quickly ruled out as a potential suspect. It was nothing more than another dead-end lead. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. I can't begin to imagine how difficult the Christmas period of 1983 must have been for Linda's parents and siblings, but seeing as she'd already purchased her family's presents, Kathleen ensured they were handed out as intended. 
It was only when the new year came around that an inquest into Linda's death was opened and the police finally revealed that she had been strangled with her own scarf after being sexually assaulted. With the inquest finished, Linda's body was released to her family so that she could finally be laid to rest. Her funeral took place at Narborough Congregational Church on February 2nd, 1984, with Pastor Graham Adams conducting the service. Over a hundred people attended, but the event was not without controversy. The police decided to film every attendee so that anyone they hadn't spoken to would be revealed and subsequently interviewed. Before the incident room was closed in Narborough and moved to the police communications headquarters at Enderby towards the end of April that year, a 20 minute long video was created by the police in an attempt to get people to come forward with information. The video was shown in local shopping centres and even at Linda's school to her teachers and friends. As the one year anniversary loomed, the police were still no further to identifying Linda's killer. A renewed appeal commenced in November 1984 with a poster campaign using the slogan, Let's not forget Linda Mann. People continued to volunteer information, but none of it led anywhere. Detectives were convinced Linda's killer was a local due to the knowledge of the black pad not being known outside the area, and they didn't rule out the possibility that a secret boyfriend could have killed Linda. Kathleen disputed that claim, as did Edward, as they insisted they would have known if Linda had a boyfriend, secretly or otherwise. The years ticked by before another fresh appeal was launched in April 1986. One newspaper from around that time, I believe it was the Daily Record, explained how detectives feared the nation had a depraved maniac on the loose or a group of killers working together. The reason was down to how many missing or killed kids there were that, at that time, were unsolved. Some of them still are, and some of the names you'll no doubt recognise. 13-year-old Jeanette Tate disappeared in August 1978, and it's currently one of Britain's longest missing person inquiries. 15-year-old Sean McGann was murdered by strangulation in April 1979. His case remains unsolved to this day. 15-year-old Martin Allen disappeared in November 1979. No trace of him has ever been found. 14-year-old Marion Crofts was sexually assaulted and murdered in June 1981. That might sound familiar if you're a regular listener. Tony Jasinski was the person responsible for her murder. I explained that when I covered the case in episode 8 of my second season. Eight-year-old Vishal Merotra disappeared in July 1981 and his remains were found in February the following year. Nobody was ever charged with his murder though. Eleven-year-old Susan Maxwell was killed in July 1982 by Robert Black, a story I covered in my season two special. Five-year-old Caroline Hogg was killed in July 1983, also by Robert Black. Sixteen-year-old Colette Aram, who I mentioned earlier, was killed by Paul Hutchinson in October 1983. Linda Mann was then killed in November 1983, as we've just discussed. Nine-year-old Christopher Lavrak was killed in March 1984 by his uncle Melvin Reed. Seven-year-old Mark Tildesley was killed in June 1984, either by Leslie Bailey, a member of the gang of Sidney Cook, Britain's most notorious paedophile, or by Cook himself. Mark's body has never been found. Cook also has been linked to the aforementioned disappearances of Martin Allen and Vishal Merotra. 14-year-old Jason Swift disappeared in July 1985, another murder victim of Cook and his gang. Nine-year-old Imran Vora was killed by Robert Morley in July 1985. Six-year-old Barry Lewis disappeared in September 1985, another murder victim of Cook and his gang. 
10-year-old Sarah Harper was killed in March 1986 by Robert Black. And finally, 15-year-old Marty Tamboza was killed in April 1986 by John Duffy and David Mulcahy. There will be far more that I've not mentioned, but that's 16 children, all of whom had mysteriously disappeared or been murdered. And at that point, they all linked it to one unknown man. None of those had been solved at the time. It's an awful period of history in our country. I couldn't quite believe it when I read the article, to be honest. I don't mind admitting I had to step away from my laptop for a while before continuing my research. With that sobering list of names comes a brief end to Linda's story as I now need to introduce you to another 15-year-old girl called Dawn Amanda Ashworth who lived in a renovated cottage at Mill Lane, Enderby. Dawn moved there in 1981 with her parents, Dad Robin, a scientific officer, and Mum Barbara, as well as her younger brother Andrew. An attendee of Lutterworth Grammar School, just like Linda, Dawn was also a popular girl with a close-knit circle of about six friends, two of whom she was especially close with. The similarities between Dawn and Linda don't stop at their age and place of education. Dawn's was also a loving family with a strong bond that resulted in the teenager developing into an independent young woman who even went on to earn some extra money through a part-time job at Enderby News, a local newsagent's. Locals would often see Dawn walking with her dog or her dad in the village with her appreciation for life shining through at all times. Persistently smiling and happy, Dawn always complied with the rules set by her parents, such as when to be home, not to trust strangers, all the usual kind of stuff. That last point was especially drilled home on the back of Linda's murder as her killer had still not been caught. The polite youngster was last seen leaving her place of employment upon completing her shift on Thursday, July 31st, 1986. As she headed out the front door of the shop at 3.30pm, she was said to have been in high spirits because she was just two days away from heading to the seaside town of Hunstanton in Norfolk, some 95 miles east of her home. It was a family holiday that she'd been looking forward to for a good while, such was the love she had for her family. For further context, July 31st came just three days after the disappearance of 25-year-old Susie Lamplew, another unsolved case, and a day before the murder of 21-year-old Diane Sindel in Birkenhead. Those two cases are not linked to Dawn or Linda, but they shed further light on that tragic period in our country. Dawn returned to the newsagents a short while after leaving to buy some sweets for herself and a present for the little boy she babysat. Being a babysitter was another thing she had in common with Linda. Returning home soon after, Dawn informed her parents that she was heading out to see her friends in Narborough in a mirror image of what Linda's plans had been, just travelling in the opposite direction. Her parents once more warned her of the dangers of a killer being on the loose, and after reassuring them as best she could, Dawn left at around 4.30pm. Originally, Dawn were due to go out that night but had to cancel, one source mentioned her parents were going out instead, so her journey was to inform her friend that she was no longer free that night. Her friend wasn't home, however, so she decided to visit another friend on her way back, who also wasn't in. The route she took would have taken her across the busy B4114 road, which follows on from the A46 Leicester to Coventry road. Valerie Alsop was the last person to speak with Dawn as she was the mother of the second friend she attempted to visit on Carlton Avenue. That was the last time anyone saw Dawn alive. 
Failing to return home, again just like Linda, her parents quickly informed the police, who began their questioning the following day by speaking to Dawn's close friends and relatives. They wanted to know about her last known movement, so the dog handlers knew where to begin the searches. Two days of searches involving 200 officers flew by with no sign of Dawn, until finally, at midday on August 2nd, her body was found in the corner of a field next to an isolated footpath known locally as Ten Pound Lane, a short distance from the M1 motorway. Although different to the Black Pad, Ten Pound Lane has just a notorious reputation, mainly for men indecently exposing themselves and is located just five fields away. Dawn's body had been hidden under a pile of hay in dense undergrowth, and although fully clothed, it would soon be revealed that she had also been sexually assaulted before being strangled. A post-mortem confirmed no scarf or other weapon was used, meaning the killer had used his bare hands. Dawn did her absolute utmost to ward off her attacker and put up one hell of a fight based on her defensive injuries, but sadly she was no match for him. A man who worked at Marston Radiators, a business located 100 yards away from £10 Lane, called the police to explain that he'd heard a couple of screams emanating from the rough area of the footpath at 5pm on July 31st. He put it down to kids messing around and didn't think anything more of it until the discovery of Dawn's body were revealed. A second witness, a motorist, said she almost ran someone over on the A46 Leicester to Coventry Road at 5.30pm as he ran across it heading away from the general area of the footpath. His description was eerily similar to the previous running man described as running away from where Linda was killed, an early 20s male wearing a bomber jacket standing between 5'8 and 5'10. Three years have passed, remember, so he was sort of a late teenager with Linda's case. Now he was in his early 20s. Naturally, the media came up with a pointless moniker for the mystery person linked to both the murders of Linda and Dawn. They went with the Black Pad Strangler and urged the public to come forward if they were shielding someone they were suspicious of. Detective Chief Superintendent David Barker led the investigation and said publicly, We are looking for a very sick person. How right he was. When a policewoman retraced Dawn's last known movements on August 7th, it prompted a plethora of calls from the public, taking the total number of calls received to over a thousand. A mystery donor then offered a 15 grand reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer, that was the next day, and it was on that same evening that the police arrested someone. 17-year-old kitchen assistant Richard John Buckland was arrested at his Narborough home but only charged with Dawn's murder in the first instance. How exactly he became known as a suspect to the police I can't say but I assume it was on the back of one of the calls made in the days prior. August 28th saw Dawn's funeral take place at St John Baptist Church in Enderby with Canon Alan Green conducting the service. Buckland was initially remanded at Winston Green Prison in Birmingham for 72 hours, but would remain incarcerated until November 21st, 1986, three years to the day after Linda was murdered. It was on that third anniversary that detectives announced the results of a revolutionary new test which confirmed everybody's worst fears. They had arrested the wrong man. And that concludes part one of Linda and Dawn's stories. 
The second and final part will be available next Thursday. Sorry for splitting this episode into two, but there's several reasons for doing so. This week's four new reviews are as follows. Mark Nichols left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love this podcast, just binged it in about three weeks. I'm a lorry driver, so I'm always looking for new stuff to listen to, and British murders fit the bill. Keep up the good work, Stu. Can I suggest the murder of Lucy McHugh, who was only 13 at the time of her murder in Southampton? She was my daughter's friend at school. That case is on my list for you, Mark. Thanks for the suggestion. Lily left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I'm so impressed by you, Stu Blue, because every episode I listen to is always so interesting, and I learn so much every time. Your podcast is one of my favourites, and I always look forward to the next episode. Keep doing awesome work. Amanda Miller left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I came across this podcast by chance and decided to give it a go. At first, Stu was very matter-of-fact when telling the stories, but as the seasons have progressed, his personality has come through, and I love it. I'm glad to see his podcast is still going strong, as it is a gem. I'm listening to season four now, and there are currently 11 seasons, so I have a long way to go to be up to date with episodes. If you don't give it a listen, you'll be missing out on an entertaining podcast that makes you laugh and cry. Stu tells the stories in a respectful manner, the type of guy you can have a beer with. That's nice. He comes across very down to earth. He's funny. I love when he has Bobby or Bobby tells a story. 50-50 on Bobby. Some people love it. Some people uh, aren't so keen. They have a great chemistry. I agree. I give the podcast five stars. Cheerio. And finally, Maxine Braithwaite left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, absolutely love this podcast. Short enough to listen to on journeys between jobs, but always so well written. Also, always good to hear a fellow northerner. Thank you, Mark, Lily, Amanda and Maxine for those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, as well as my British Murders weekly journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways from time to time, and you'll get some thank-you goodies for signing up too. You can also support the show on a one-off basis at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Please email any case suggestions to contact at britishmurders.com. That's my new email address, contact at britishmurders.com. The old one still works. Or just message me via social media. You'll get the episode covered and you'll get a cheeky shout out for your trouble. That does it for part one. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.